Coming up, the NFL waited until the final day and the very last second of their regular season to produce its best moments, capping it off with a dramatic ending in last night's Chargers-Raiders contest. I'll recap a wild Week 18, my final winners and losers, and look ahead to Super Wildcard Weekend as the first leg of the postseason schedule is set. A champion will be crowned in Indianapolis tonight as I'll preview Alabama versus Georgia meeting yet again for college football supremacy. Will the Bulldogs finally exercise those Crimson Tide demons? Clay Thompson makes his long-awaited return to the Warriors after two-and-a-half injury-plagued years. Is he the missing link in getting his team back to the finals? More games continue to be postponed on the ice. To Visa or not to Visa if you're Novak Djokovic. And shots fired from Queens into the Bronx between the Mets and Yankees. You know I've got a lot to divulge, dissect, and disseminate as the latest podcast is on deck. But first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You can also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review, It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media. I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels Podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits as always. And also, hoping that the first week and a half of your 2022 is off to a flying, positive, and wonderful start. So it's time for me to do the same as I'll get this sports podcast party started as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me for now 232 episodes, I welcome you guys and gals back. It is a Monday, January the 10th in the year of our Lord 2022. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What's expected on this podcast? This is as follows. The bowl season in college football culminates in a national championship game tonight. As Georgia and Alabama renew acquaintances as our first champion of 2022 will be forthcoming. I'll preview what to possibly expect tonight as the Bulldogs have it all in front of them to finally dethrone their longtime conference rivals. So I'll touch on that as well as what's going on in the NHL as games continue to be postponed. I'll lace up my skates and zip through what's happening on the ice later on in the podcast. Also, after a lengthy two and a half year battle with debilitating injuries and being on the men which seems like forever... Clay Thompson was reintroduced to the NBA last night as his Warriors were victorious in his much-anticipated return. 
Does this mean that the Dubs have the inside track on being the favorites to come out in the West? I'll discuss that. Also, Kyrie's impact on the Nets as he got back into the fold with his Brooklyn teammates and much more in the association later on. Also, the Australian Open kicks off a week from today, but there's been lots of buzz surrounding defending champion Novak Djokovic's participation in the first major tournament of the new year. Will he get a visa? Will he not? I'll give you an up-to-date report on what's gone on with the 20-time Grand Slam champion as the Australian Open, as I mentioned, kicks off just seven days from today. And we'll have that, including some shots fired from Queens into the Bronx between the Mets and Yankees. And a couple other baseball notes that I'll get into. All of that, including my hero and zero of the week. It is finally over. I know it's only one extra game, but what made the NFL season special in years past is that today, I would have gone over what had happened in the wildcard round, but instead, we'll have to preview it after an 18th week where going in, we didn't have much drama, it seemed like it was going to be anticlimactic, and for whatever the reason, the football gods threw us a big giant surprise to this underwhelming, not as exciting, even at times never-ending, biggest season ever, as the NFL so eloquently put, but... That was way back prior to week one of this season where they had the matchup in Tampa between Dallas and the Buccaneers. That was actually four months ago yesterday. So just to see how fast this season has gone, but at the same time, these final few weeks, it felt like molasses because all we were looking forward to was getting to the end of the regular season and seeing where the chips would fall so we could finally get that quest to a Super Bowl that will be played in SoFi come next month. And even though there was some rumblings that were going on during the middle of last week to where the Super Bowl site looked like it was actually going to be moved from LA to possibly Dallas because of what's going on in the country due to COVID. But as of right now, it does seem as if SoFi will host Super Bowl 56, which will take place on February the 13th. But with the way the season had gone, especially in my eyes, and even in some circles where a lot of people thought, oh, the season was too long, uh, loved it at the beginning, thinking that, wow, how could we pass up more football or an extra week? But then they realized that, yeah, maybe it is a little bit too long, even if it is just one extra week or one extra game. Check the receipts, people. I was on board in the minority prior to week one saying that the extra game is nonsense. It's meaningless. They shouldn't do it. And... With the wild card round upcoming, and obviously I'm going to get into all that and even have a gripe about that. But I have to look back on yesterday's week 18 because as I said, pretty much going into the weekend, we didn't think that there was going to be a lot to unfold. Yeah, you may have a couple of storylines. Yeah, there was going to be some possibilities. But with how things broke down, pretty much from, I'll say, 2.45 till about 12.15 Eastern Time, Man, was there a lot to swallow and even regurgitate when it came to those eight or nine hours of the NFL season. So let's get right to it. My winners for week 18, the final one of the regular season. Winner number one is going to go to the San Francisco 49ers and to my boy Louis Pizarro, who is a diehard Niner fan. Also, another big Niner fan, Noemi, who I've known for many years. I'm sure they're rejoicing and dancing in their Joe Montana jerseys right now because with the way their final few weeks of the season had gone, whether it was tough losses in Seattle 
and in Tennessee, or even big wins for that matter, whether it be in Cincinnati, or even this one right here just yesterday in LA where they were down 17 to nothing, came all the way back, and then win in overtime on the bad thumb of a one Jimmy Garoppolo. I know it must have been tough for Kyle Shanahan to put all of his chips to the middle of the table with Trey Lance to bring him home, to bring him into a postseason, but Garoppolo, give it up. He gutted it out. He was able to come back from that 17 nothing hole, and as we know, going into the game yesterday, the Rams, for whatever the reason, whenever they see the Niners, that's their kryptonite. They cannot get over the hump with this Niner team. They have now lost six straight times to their upstate rivals. And for San Francisco to pull off just the miraculous, let's call it as we see it, just a tremendous win by this Niner team who has faced a lot of adversity throughout the course of the year. And with the Rams, we'll get to them a little bit later on as we go through the playoff storylines. But you had to big up what San Francisco did to do it on the road to be able to get themselves primed and ready for a big playoff game in Dallas come this weekend. And now all their sights are set on what they could do moving forward as a possible dark horse team in the NFC. So they are my winner number one. Winner number two, I know people are going to say, of course, J-Reels, you have to throw them in here, but why not? Goes to the Pittsburgh Steelers. This was a team that I buried And you can check those receipts too. I got to keep myself accountable for what I do on this podcast. I buried this team going back to when they tied with the Detroit Lions. And then, of course, the subsequent losses, especially the loss after the game to the Bengals the second time around when they lost 41-10. to That's when I thought, forget about it. There's no way this team's going to make it to the postseason. I thought that the tie with the Lions was going to come back to bite him, but it actually was more of a blessing than a curse because of the tiebreaker scenarios. And obviously, I'm going to get to that in a little bit as far as tiebreakers are concerned or ties in general. But for the Steelers to gut out that game yesterday, and I've said it time after time after time, I get it that there are more talented quarterbacks in the history of the sport. I get it that there are more talented quarterbacks that you would have if you were to draft your team today, whether it's Aaron Rodgers, whether it's Tom Brady, I understand the older guard when it comes to the quarterback position but when we look at even the young guys whether your name is Justin Herbert or even a guy like Joe Burrow a lot of people may even choose one of those two guys because if you're going to look long term not necessarily for one game or just for one year but when you want to give the keys to your franchise over to the one guy those are two that will come to mind as far as choosing them over anybody else and I'm not going to sit here to say that Ben Roethlisberger is better than any of those guys, especially at this stage of his career. But please, and I'll be waiting patiently. I want to know one guy right now in the NFL that has as much heart and as much guts as this guy. You can't come up with one because he will be at the top of the charts. And I get at the end of the day is talent that wins. I know it's the big arm, the mobility. I know that out of all the quarterbacks that if you were to rank them that are left in the postseason, he'll be at the bottom. And understandable. 1,000%. But if somehow, some way, that if the game is hanging in the balance, or even if they're trailing, and as we've seen throughout the course of this year, whether it was against Minnesota, obviously the game against the Ravens in Pittsburgh the first time around, we could go through a whole slew of games where they came from behind. Against the Chargers, that Sunday night game as well where he brought his team back from the dead. 
And even though in two of those games they lost. But for whatever the reason, the guy never stops. He's relentless. And you saw that there yesterday. Granted, he had some major contributions along the way, whether your name is Ray Ray McLeod on that big third down, which led to the go-ahead touchdown drive. I know the rookie Pat Fryer moved who ran out of bounds way too soon there at midfield, but then later on made the big catch to propel a long third down. I believe it was third and 12 at the time. And that moved the chains. You also had Chase Claypool who contributed. And so many obstacles that this team had to overcome just in this game alone. And that's not only including what happened with T.J. Watt as he tied Michael Strahan for the all-time single-season sack record. I get it. He did it in a 17-game season. But mind you, if you take away the two-and-a-half games that he did not play in a regular season, he actually did this in 14-and-a-half games. But of course, it's not going to be viewed in that light. But congratulations to T.J. Watt in that manner. And another reason why I hate the 17-game season, but that's another story for another day. But for the Steelers and everything they had to overcome, even trailing in this game 10-6 to and having to take the lead and Justin Tucker tying the game and then converting on that 4th and 8th there, which was, I couldn't believe it. I didn't think that the Steelers were going to convert there. I hate to say it, even though Roethlisberger had a little bit of a rhythm going. And here they are. They live to see another week. Roethlisberger doesn't go off into the sunset just yet. This, of course, on the heels of the Monday night game where they beat Cleveland and the the farewell, the send-off there at Heinz Field. Well, you're going to see him one more time there, NFL fans and, of course, Steeler fans. But who knows? It's probably going to be short-lived, and I'll touch on that later on. But they are my winners, number two. And guess what? Winner number three this week, you're going to be surprised, is yours truly. And people, before they either drive off the road or hopefully you're not cooking with a hot pot in your hand. The reason why I'm including myself is because I've been terrible with my over-unders over the years. But thankfully, I had to root for Pittsburgh to win yesterday and also for the Falcons to lose in order for your boy to go 6-0 and in his over-under picks before the start of the year. So let's review. My over-under choices were Green Bay at 11.5. That was a slam dunk. Tennessee at 9, slam dunk. And then Pittsburgh was 8.5 as an over. So by them winning yesterday, they were at 9. I cleared that. And then my three unders that I chose were Miami 9.5, which even though I didn't really sweat, despite the fact that they had that long winning streak there to get to 8 and 7. But 9.5, so they win 9. They didn't go over. Jacksonville 6.5 as an under. And of course, the Falcons losing yesterday to the Saints. At 7.5, they finish at 7-10. and 10, So your boy is 6-0 and 0 for the over-unders this year. That will not be the case in the NBA. So I'll save that for another time. So that is your winners of the week. And my losers, I have to start off, obviously, with the Indianapolis Colts. This team has had so many huge wins. Right, think about this. They won in Buffalo 41-15 where they ran roughshod over a Bill defense where, okay, they're not going to be confused with the Monsters of the Midway, but still, for them to put up that type of score, that type of blowout on the road, shocking to say the least. Then they go to Arizona. I get it that the Cardinals are reeling a little bit, but still, formidable opponent on the road, Christmas night, what do they do? They pull off a victory there. Mind you, the week before, they went at home against the New England Patriots, where they pretty much cruised in the first half. All right, they had to hang on to win at the end, but still. This team has had big wins throughout the course of the second half of the season. And then for them to go into Jacksonville, and I get it that it's been a house of horrors for this team 
dating back to 2014. And speaking of which, not in the over-under category, but when it comes to the knockout pools, week one last year was Indianapolis at Jacksonville, and I picked the Colts to win that game. And what happened? I got burned right out of the gate. So here it was now, a year and a half, or really, what, 15 months later, and then the Colts, all they had to do was win, and it would have been in. Now, mind you, there would have been some tiebreaker scenarios, of course, between the Chargers-Colts as far as whether they'd be 6th or 7th in the AFC. But by them going into Jacksonville and laying a gigantic deuce, not only at midfield, but pretty much all up and down, Alltel Stadium, whatever the name of that stadium is, uh, I don't even know right now because they change these stadium names as if it's the weather. But 26-11... to they were losing at one point 23 to 3. They got stopped in turnovers here and there, stopped on fourth and goal. Carson Wentz was awful. As bad of a performance as you could possibly get in a game that meant win or go home. And I still to this second can't even fathom how they weren't even in this game, let alone lost this game. And give it up for Jacksonville. We know the type of year they had, Urban Meyer, the growing pains of a one Trevor Lawrence, but he certainly looked like the number one overall pick. Last year, as he was able to dismantle that Colt defense and let alone send the Colts into the winter just as cold and with a lot of what-ifs in their wake. So Indianapolis, they get my loser number one. And loser number two has to go to the Los Angeles Chargers. And we could talk about this game and we will get into certain specifics, but... We know it was a win-or-go-home scenario. They were going into Vegas, the Sunday night game, final game of the NFL season. And for them to be down in the game, now, granted, they had an early lead, but then now as we get to the point of the game where I actually turned off and I figured, ah, it's five minutes to go, 29-14. I can see them making it interesting and making it close, but ah, I'm just going to go to bed. So be it. I had enough of football throughout the course of the day, people. Obviously, I had Ajita with the Steeler game. As the, If you watched that, it wasn't a great game to begin with, but obviously the last quarter and a half was nail-biting and a white-knuckler, to say the least. So I was footballed out at that point. I said, let me get to bed, and I'll see what uh, took place and get the recap in the morning. Sure enough, the Chargers not only get a touchdown and a two-point conversion, but they get a final play in regulation a BB from Justin Herbert to Mike Williams into the end zone. They kick the extra point. 29 up. Then the Raiders get the ball to where they kick a field goal. The Chargers do the same. And then the Raiders get the ball back. Now, mind you, it's about three to four minutes left in the game. They do get past midfield. It's past the two-minute warning in overtime. And as we know, as we've heard all week long, and I'm sure you probably was banged over your head ad nauseum that if both the Chargers and Raiders tied, they'll be in the playoffs because, remember, the Steelers with their tie earlier this season to Detroit, they would all be at 9-7-1, and and considering that Pittsburgh lost both to the Raiders and Chargers, that would have eliminated them, and your 6-7 and seed would have been the Chargers and Raiders. So what happens? With about a minute and change to go, on a second and 11, they run a draw. Josh Jacobs, he runs for seven yards. And as the clock is winding down, now mind you, the ball at the time of second and 11 was at the 
Charger 46-yard line. So he runs seven yards to the 39. It looks like the Raiders, they were going to pretty much run the clock out. Here's where the Chargers, and especially their coach, which I get it, he'll make you pull your hair out of your head as he went for a fourth down early in the game, fourth and, what was it, fourth and four at his own 16. What is he doing calling a timeout there with, what is it, 38 seconds to go? He stops the clock where you know that the Raiders were just looking to get out of there, even with a tie, not even run another play, and even if they did, it probably would have called a delay of game. I don't even think that the Raiders would have called a timeout there, but it would have gotten five yards back. They would have taken a knee, and that's it. Tie game, they would have done the Chargers a big favor. Instead, by Staley calling that timeout, they regroup. They still have to run another play. I get that the Chargers could have taken a knee, but you figured out what the hell. Let's just run a draw, run out the clock, and go home, and that's it. No. What happens? Jacobs then runs for 10 yards, not only gets a first down, but then puts them in field goal position to where Daniel Carlson, who's been hitting clutch kicks all over the place, kicks a 46-yard field goal as time expires, which propels the Steelers to go into the playoffs, knocks the Chargers out, and if Brandon Staley has slept a wink since last night, I'd be shocked. How in the hell do you call a timeout there? And if you even read the lips of Justin Herbert, and now I'm paraphrasing because off the top of my head, I don't recall exactly what he said. But he pretty much said, and the camera was on him where he says, oh, I guess we're going to play for a tie here. To where the Raiders had no incentive to kick a field goal, even move the ball another inch. Because they knew they were going to be in regardless. And for Staley to call that timeout there was just inexplicable. And you got to be sick to your stomach if you're a Charger fan. So with that said, props goes out to my Raider Nation faithful, Sean Santiago, David D. Rock Pabone, and even my girl Jasmine, who I know are ecstatic right now, jumping up and down as they're going into the postseason, flying high, winners of four straight. Rich Bisaccia, you think he's going to be the favorite to come back next year, and if Mark Davis were to put him out in the street, that would be a disgrace. This team was 6-7 and seven and nowhere near the playoffs, and now here they are, smack dab right in the middle of it as the first game to kick off the Super Wildcard weekend. So those are my two losers. I understand I threw in the Raiders winning and props to everybody who follows the Raiders. But man, the Chargers just suffered as brutal of a defeat as you could possibly experience. And also, I got to shout out Zeke Duarte. He's a big Charger fan, one of the very few that I know. And he's, uh, I'm sure he hasn't slept an ounce based on that result last night. So that's pretty much the extent of it. I'm not going to get into... A lot of the particulars in reference to the schedule this week, I mean, really, am I going to talk about Chicago, Minnesota, or Washington at the Giants, Jets, Buffalo? I know some of these games were important as far as seeding is concerned, but really, to get through or go through the whole slate, it doesn't mean much. Obviously, when we go through the playoffs, and especially with the scenarios of the seedings, etc., we do know that In the AFC, Tennessee, by them beating Houston yesterday, they secured the one seed, even with Kansas City beating Denver there on Saturday in the first game of that doubleheader there prior to yesterday's games. And obviously with Green Bay, although they lost to Detroit, but they had the one seed locked in the NFC, so they're pretty much going to put their feet up over the course of the next two weeks before they host the divisional round game, which is right now to be determined. We have to get through this first week as opposed to 
having a feel or figuring out as to when they'll play. My guess, Green Bay could either be the early game on Saturday, meaning 4.30 there in the afternoon that first Saturday, or it's going to be the Sunday game at 6.30 to be the nightcap of the whole divisional round weekend. So that's going to be my guess. Because if you remember last year, the first game of the divisional round was Rams at Green Bay. So I could almost see Green Bay probably in that slot again. But of course, they got to wait to see how everything shakes down, especially with the playoffs now bleeding into Monday as we have a Monday night game. So we'll have to wait and see as far as any advantages because for argument's sake, you don't want to have the team that's playing on Monday, especially Monday night, then have to have a five-day turnaround if they happen to fall up in the Saturday game. I mean, it'd be unfair to them. So you know that they're going to have to wait this sucker out at least until maybe Sunday night at the latest, depending on where the seeds go as far as what happens in the other games. And I'll get to that, of course. But that's the situation with your top two seeds. Before I even get into the playoffs, the... First round matchups, obviously the playoff storylines, etc. Of course, it is Black Monday in the NFL, which means a lot of coaches have already been let go, fired, etc. And we've already seen a slew of them. And one major surprise, if I might add. But I'll start off with Vic Fangio and Denver. Pretty much after their loss on Saturday afternoon to the Chiefs, Vic Fangio was shown his walking papers as he is gone after a 7-10 season. I understand not really his fault because of the quarterback scenario. Teddy Bridgewater, we knew, was not going to be the guy. He was a stopgap guy. And even though Fangio did get a lot out of his team early in the season, they started off 3-0 and were still hanging around as a fringe team late in the season, but they collapsed and did not play well. So I guess they're going to look at those final few games as to why they gave Fangio the boot. So he's the first guy off the ship. You also had Matt Nagy, which is no surprise in Chicago. He was rumored to be gone before the Thanksgiving Day game against Detroit, if you remember that, going back six weeks ago. So Nagy is gone in Chicago, as well as, if you stick to the NFC North, Mike Zimmer gone in Minnesota. So they're going to be looking for a new coach there. But the shocker came through this morning, and that was Brian Flores of the Miami Dolphins. And I get it. He's been there three years. Hasn't done much in a sense where his team has not made it to the playoffs. And even though they had a soft underbelly of a schedule where they started off 1-7 and and then ran seven in a row to where they beat the likes of the Jets twice, the Giants, the Houston Texans, the Saints without Taysom Hill. They started the kid from Notre Dame, Ian Book at quarterback. So I get it that they beat up some bad teams along the way. But going into the next to final week, they were at 8-7, and seven, and although got blasted by the Titans last week, they did end up beating the Patriots yesterday, a season sweep over the New England Patriots, but that wasn't enough for Stephen Ross, the owner, to bring him back for one more year, which to me is a joke, and I think Flores is going to get a job in about five minutes. I'm sure his agent's phone is ringing off the hook right now, and again, I'm not trying to make out Brian Flores to be Tony Dungy. But when you think about his first year, he was 5-11, and but I think they started off 0-9. And then if you remember, they won that final game in Foxborough, which knocked the Patriots out of a two-seed and into the wildcard round, where Tom Brady's final game, if you remember, was against the Titans, and they lost in that opening round. 
Last year, 10-6, and six, I get it. They fell short there by losing to Buffalo in the final game of the regular season. And then after a slow start and a great turnaround to their season, he gets the axe, which, again, give him one more year and let's see where the chips would fall at that point. But I thought it was premature for Ross to pull the plug on the Flores tenure down in Miami. So we'll see where they go for a coach. I know a lot of the rumors was... Ross's connection with Jim Harbaugh, but it looks like that that's been shot down. That's not going to be the case, so you can forget about that. But who knows if anything's going to start percolating between Harbaugh and the Dolphins again. I wouldn't be shocked if that's the case. And then who knows what's going to happen here in my backyard with Joe Judge, the giant head coach who fizzled out the last six games of the regular season where they lost six straight, all by double digits. Joe Judge, more bluster has nothing to back up any of his nonsense that he talks in these post-game press conferences. And here it was again to where his team was just embarrassed by the Washington football team, did not perform well. His rah-rah rhetoric and culture and all this other nonsense means nothing. It's about wins and losses. And if you're John Mara, I get it. You don't want to go down this road again of hiring a coach and then two seasons later firing them Even if your name was Ben McAdoo, as they fired him halfway through his second season after making the playoffs the year before, Pat Shermer, two years gone, Joe Judge, two years gone. I don't care if he's Belichick's son. Forget about him being on his staff. The guy is clueless when it comes to coaching, as you saw here in these final few weeks of the season. And that's all there is to it. And not to say that I've watched every giant play or snap or every game, but all I got to do is just turn on the Sports Talk Radio here locally and from the fans, from the hosts, blast this guy from here to kingdom come. I mean, he's just been awful. And the Giants, as we all know, they've been the worst team in the sport for about a half a decade. And that Super Bowl run, which is the 10-year anniversary of that, 46 to where they beat the Patriots the second time around, that might as well have been 100 years ago considering... But John Mara just needs to start from scratch. And if he was smart, he would pick up the phone. Here I am talking about Belichick Disciples. I would pick up the phone to call Brian Flores and say, hey, what do you think about the giant position? Because he would be a tremendous upgrade over Joe Judge, Pat Shermer, and Ben McAdoo all combined. And this is where McAdoo made it to the playoffs that one year. So we'll see what happens there with some of these other coaches as we go along. But that's what we got And let me even take a look as we get a right up to the second report to see whether or not that the Black Monday has continued with some of these other coaches. Nope, that's pretty much it as of right now. So that's what we got with the scenario regarding the coaches and being fired here on the Monday after the season. So now let's get to it. The playoff storylines, and this is overall, this isn't just the wild card. This is going to be my take for pretty much the whole postseason run. And then, of course, I'll get into the wild card matchups, my predictions, etc. And then we will move forward. The number one storyline, I believe, in the postseason this year has to be Aaron Rodgers. For everything that has transpired almost 52 weeks later, we'll say to be accurate 49 weeks. That loss at Lambeau to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, as much as it stung then, now he can regroup, now he can refocus and retool on having his sights set for a trip out to Southern California to be the NFC representative in the Super Bowl. And you would think that 
even if this is his last go around in Green Bay, he wants to go out firing on all cylinders. And with all that has transpired from the press conference, even after the championship game, saying that, oh, I think there's going to be some changes made. Oh, I'm going to really have to reflect just on my whole career here. Yada, yada, yada. With all the animosity in the offseason between between he and the Packers, although he did report to training camp on time, but then you had the scenario regarding his vaccination status or lack thereof, and the one game that he had to sit out due to COVID, which happened to lead into the week against Kansas City, where we saw Jordan Love not perform at his best, to say the least, in that game, to now where he is the front runner to be the MVP of the league for another year, but... As we like to say on the podcast from time to time, it don't mean a thing if you ain't got that ring. And we understand that Aaron Rodgers does have a ring and has some Super Bowl hardware on his mantle. But that might as well have been a thousand years ago because this organization, this team, and especially this quarterback needs another one to cement himself as one of the immortals or one of the top 10 quarterbacks of all time. So... What we see from here on out is going to be all about Aaron Rodgers. Now, we have a week to put him on the shelf and not have to discuss about the pack and number 12, but he is going to be front and center once Green Bay is under the lights as to him not only going to a Super Bowl, but winning one. My second storyline has to be Matthew Stafford. Here's a guy that we know imported from Detroit for Jared Goff to where coach Sean McVay of the Rams pretty much said good riddance to Jared Goff, a guy who took him to the Super Bowl a few years back. But in bringing in a guy like Stafford, who had only made it to the postseason a handful of times, did not come out victorious in the Motor City. And now with all of the pressure, all of the magnitude of what the Rams did, not only bringing Stafford in, but also bringing Von Miller in before the trade deadline, also bringing in Odell Beckham Jr. a month after that. The expectations of this team that they've mortgaged their entire future. I don't even think they have a first-round pick until the year 2035. I believe that's the year where Bryce Harper's contract in baseball will expire. So they have nothing really to shoot for in the future. It's all about right this second. So when we look at how Stafford has performed here over the final few weeks of this regular season where he's turned the ball over constantly and now it's going to be front and center for this Ram team that although they'll have a home game but he's going to have to lead them minimum to a conference championship game in order for this trade to be justified. And that is just terrible to think because the reason why they brought him here was to get to a Super Bowl and win one. But for whatever the reason, McVay put all of his faith, all of his energy, and pretty much his coaching future on the shoulders of number nine of your LA Ram program when you look at their roster. I tell you, he is, I don't know how this is going to turn out. Maybe Stafford, he's going to have some pregame jitters. I understand all players do, but boy, does he have a lot to prove here. And all I can say is that he has a home game, which we'll discuss. It's the final game of the weekend. 
It's not like it's going to be smack dead in the middle of all the other playoff games. Now, granted, we all know they're each on their own island, so it's not as if it's going to be mixed up in any other game, but it's the final game of wildcard weekend. It's the Monday night. So, granted that the world will be watching no matter what time slot, no matter what day, etc., but because he is the last act, he is the final one of the opening weekend, and is he going to be able to put up or shut up? And to me, that is fascinating theater when it comes to the Rams, when it comes to him and how he's been able to not answer the bell. And granted, he's only had a handful, a smattering of opportunities, but now this is the biggest one of his career. And each game moving forward, as long as they win, it's going to be the biggest game of his career. Right now, Matthew Stafford has to look in that mirror and say, I'm about to play the biggest game of my career for a franchise that brought me here to take them to the promised land. And that promised land is in his own backyard, as I've said constantly throughout this podcast, to where they could be in back-to-back years hosting a Super Bowl in their own stadium. So that's number two. Number three, the AFC is wide open. Or is it? Because we all know, to me, this is Kansas City's conference to lose. I understand Tennessee's the number one seed. I get that They'll have the week off and the playoffs will run through Nashville as long as they're still alive. But does anybody really think that the Titans are going to make it to the Super Bowl? And I get that they finally got Julio Jones on the scoreboard. He caught his first touchdown as a member of the Titans there yesterday in Houston. And you probably have a Derrick Henry sighting in the postseason as he comes off of that foot where he was scheduled to be on the shelf for about 5 to 12 weeks. So I'm sure you're going to see him at some point, if not in the divisional round, but possibly the championship game if they get that far. But we all know that if Mahomes and company are going to be clicking, and if that offense is going to be the lethal high-powered offense that we've come to know and see over the last three or four years, what other team in the conference is going to stop them? Well, the Bengals? Buffalo? Dare I even say a team like the Pittsburgh Steelers? who happens to be their first-round matchup, and you know I'm going to get to that in a minute. But I think that the AFC right now, as wide open as we could discuss and talk about all the possibilities, I still think it's Kansas City's to lose. And this first matchup, I think, will be a walk in the park, although I'll have a few takes on it, as you'll hear in a moment. But I don't believe in Tennessee. Buffalo, I have to see it. I hate to say it, I get last year, it was more of a year for the Bills to get as far as they did and to get to an AFC Championship game where they lost to Kansas City, and who knows, maybe they'll turn it on, maybe they'll be that team that's the dangerous three seed in the conference, but to me, it's Kansas City or bust, and I hate to put it that way. It's not going to be the upstart Raiders, the Bengals, maybe they could go out there and do some damage, but they have to get past that first round in order for me to see that. And remember, this Bengal team has not won a postseason game going back 32 years. So that's why I think it's going to be Kansas City. And not to say all eyes are going to be on Arrowhead or on Mahomes, but would you be surprised that at the end of the day, the Chiefs will be the AFC champion and going back to another Super Bowl? I wouldn't. 
So as far as dark horses and sleepers and things of that nature, and this goes to my last point, to me, there are only a handful of teams that I think are going to win the Super Bowl this year. And those teams are going to be as follows. I'll say the Titans just out of respect because they're a one seed and they have two games in their building to make it to a Super Bowl. So I'm going to say Tennessee, Kansas City, Buffalo, and there's Green Bay, Tampa Bay, and the Rams. I don't think any of the other teams are going to come close to a Super Bowl. So similar to the NBA where sadly in years past there was either going to be the Cavaliers, the Warriors, the Spurs when they were good at that time. You maybe want to throw in Toronto in the mix. But since there were only a handful of teams in the NBA that were going to win it, I think same here. So as much as you want to talk about parity, as much as you want to talk about maybe the Cowboys making a run, or even a team like the Bengals, also the Cardinals, and we saw how they've pretty much have fallen apart here down the stretch, although they did have that big win that was sandwiched last week before losing yesterday to Seattle at home. But for the big picture, I think it's one of six teams. I don't even take Tennessee out. I, I put them in there, but do I think Tennessee is going to make it to a Super Bowl? No. Or do I think they can win a Super Bowl? I'm going to say no too. So, you're going to have six teams, but preferably five if you're Jay Reels, to say that KC, Buffalo, Green Bay, Tampa Bay, LA Rams are the teams that probably will raise the Vince Lombardi trophy over their shoulders when it's all said and done. And I don't even think the Rams at this point. I picked the Rams winning the Super Bowl against the Buffalo Bills. Because again, I got to see a lot more from Stafford in order for me to believe that the Rams are going to be championship worthy. So that is the final straw because as much as we could talk about, oh, this team could go on a run or this team could be effective. I could see this team make it to a championship game. Uh, Yeah, we could talk about that. But to me, I'm not going to sit here and say it's a waste of time. I can tell you who could be a team that could be a threat, but At the end of the day, to me, it's going to be those five or six teams that are going to make it to the dance, and five of them are going to win it. So we can talk about dark horses all we want. That's pretty much the nuts and bolts of what it comes down to when we talk about teams that are going to win the Super Bowl. Now let's get to these matchups here this weekend, and we'll go in chronological order. Your first game is Las Vegas at Cincinnati. This should be a shootout type of game now these teams met early in the season where Cincinnati was out in Vegas and they pretty much destroyed him I believe the score was what 34 to 12 or something like that and when we look at these matchups just about all of them except for two where we have San Francisco at Dallas as a matter of fact that was the only one San Francisco at Dallas was the only one of these wildcard matchups that is not a rematch everybody else has played one another this year. So Vegas-Cincinnati, I could see this being a wild shootout type game. Who knows what the weather will be like. I'm sure that'll be a factor. This is going to be a tough call. I would like to see the Bengals get over the hump. I really would. And I get it that the Raiders had to run the table to get to this point to make it into the playoffs now that they're winners of four in a row. But with Burrow... Jamar Chase, their offense, I'm not in love with their defense, although Trey Hendrickson, we understand he's a pro bowler and may end up being an all-pro defensive lineman. But I'm going to say the Bengals squeak out 
a nail-biter, 34-31, somewhere along the lines of that as they win the opening game this week. And remember, the Bengals have not won in 32 years. So they're due. Remember, when Marvin Lewis took all those playoff teams, Andy Dalton, etc., he was 0-6 as a coach. And now with Zach Taylor being up front and center, you would only hope, if you're a Bengal fan, that goes out to my guy, Jai Shields, Brian Murray, and of course, Risa Saslow. I know that you've been waiting for this moment for a long time, and you're first up here for the NFL playoffs, Saturday, 4.30 on NBC. The nightcap, New England at Buffalo. As we know, both of these teams play in the same division. They split both of their regular season matchups. Just recently, I might add, what was it, five weeks ago, you had the... New England Patriots win up in Buffalo, where three weeks after that, Buffalo was able to win in Foxborough. Well, the game is at Orchard Park, and you wonder what the weather's going to be like there. I'm sure it's going to be frigid. I'm sure it's going to be single digits with wind chill. Who knows if it's going to be snow? But you would think Buffalo is going to do just enough and then some. And I said it a couple weeks ago, I know Sean McDermott is going to do his best to put the ball in Mac Jones' hands to win the game. He's going to do whatever it takes to slow down that running game. Not to say that that running game is anything to really write home about. I mean, it's not the electric company of the Buffalo Bills dating back to O.J. Simpson 100 years ago. Or it's the ground and pound of the Jets. Or the Steeler running game of the 70s. Throwing any running back, any team, whatever. But I would think Buffalo knows that Belichick is going to go in there with that particular game plan. And McDermott although he doesn't have to match Belichick's wits, but I think he learned by what happened there in Foxborough what he needs to do to beat the Pats, and I think they're going to do the same come Saturday night. I don't know. I'd say 24-13. Philly at Tampa is your 1 o'clock Sunday game on Fox. Now, Philly, I don't believe too much in Jalen Hurts. I know a lot of the talk is going to be about Tampa, and people are saying, well, Jay Reels, how come Tampa's not one of the teams that you're going to highlight as far as a playoff storyline? To me, there isn't anything to discuss. They won a Super Bowl last year, and even if they lose in the first round, people will be shocked. But is anybody going to really care at the end of the day? I mean, unless they lose, either get blown out, which is not going to happen, or if they lose on, let's just say, a terrible, costly turnover or bad decision by Bruce Arians, it doesn't matter. To me, Tampa's not the highlight storyline here in this postseason. I will say they'll win this game. I don't know what the Eagles are going to have in store when it comes to playing Tampa. Again, Philly's that nondescript team. Yes, Jalen Hurts going to have to run all over the lot. They're going to have to get a lot of yards on the ground to keep Tampa's offense at bay and keep them on the sidelines. And pretty much, I'm sure that's going to be the formula for the coaching staff of the Eagles as they go into this game, but I think it's going to be too much Brady. I would say Tampa's going to win 28-9. to Maybe Tampa scores a little bit more, but I could see them just kicking field goals all day. Your 430 game, San Francisco at Dallas. I know a lot of people are going to look at the Niners as a dark horse, but they're just too inconsistent for me. I could see this being a highly competitive game. I know that the Cowboys chomping at the bit here, home game, and they've done well in this spot in the wild card round. Years ago when they beat the Detroit Lions in that one game, I believe it was what, 2015? Well, this was pre-Dak Prescott, but they also won against Seattle 
in that wild card game before losing in LA. So in this spot, they've done well in their building in a wild card round. So let's see if that pattern stays the same. It's another tough call. I'm not going to say it's a toss-up by any stretch. I think Dallas is going to win this game. I can see it being close and then Dallas pulling away late. So I'll say Dallas 30 and San Francisco 20. Your night game, Pittsburgh at Kansas City. These teams played three weeks ago and Kansas City thrashed Pittsburgh. Thrashed them. 36-10. It wasn't even a game. If you recall on my Twitter feed, it was 14-0 and I said this game's over. And it pretty much was. I'll say this, as a Steeler fan, the only way Pittsburgh is even in this game or even has a chance to win this game, two things. A, field position, and B, turnovers. And I understand you can say that about a lot of these playoff games, but Pittsburgh is not going to go down the length of a field to score a touchdown unless it's garbage time. So they're going to have to get some turnovers early. They're going to have to throw Mahomes off at some point. Get him out of rhythm. I'm not trying to say they got to sack him or whatever because everybody's going to say, oh, if you get pressure on Mahomes, we know that. But still, maybe somehow, some way that the Chiefs think that, oh, we beat Pittsburgh a few weeks ago. They're going to take him for granted a little bit. And next thing you know, it's 10-7 midway through the second quarter where the Steels are still hanging around. I do think the Steels will play a little bit better, but this is no contest. I don't think it's going to be 36-10 to what we saw a few weeks ago. But sadly, this is going to be Ben's last game. And what's also sucks as a Steeler fan, I believe his playoff record is 13-9. and nine. So by him getting an L here, he's going to have double-digit losses. I understand, big whoop at the end of the day. And Tomlin, ever since he went to Super Bowl 45 and he lost that game to the Packers, his playoff record since then is 3-7. and seven. And it looks like it's going to be 3-8. and eight. And I think it's highly... Likely that's going to be the case. Steelers are going to crack 20 here. I'm going to say 31, Kansas City, Pittsburgh, 18. And I can see that just being like a mop-up touchdown. Because Pittsburgh, if you haven't watched the Steelers, their offense is just pathetic. It's just terrible. It really is. I hate to say it. And who knows with Najee Harris, he suffered that elbow injury. He's not going to be 100%. But... Remains to be seen. And then the Monday night game, Arizona at LA. I don't know who to trust more. Matthew Stafford or even Kyler Murray. And this would be a terrible ending to a Arizona. They started off 7-0. and And they ended their season 4-6. and All I could say is that whomever comes out from this game may be a sacrificial lamb for the next game. Because I could see Arizona, and they play well in that building. They beat the Rams earlier in the year, 37-20 to at SoFi. I can't even tell you who's going to win this game. I'd want to say Rams only because they're home and for everything I said about Matthew Stafford. But I could see Stafford having just one of those games where, yeah, some of the numbers look good. 26 for 34, 310 yards, but he throws for two touchdowns and three interceptions. And one of those are, are pick six. But the hell with it. I'm going to say in overtime, Rams 30, Cardinals 27. And there's your wild card weekend. I'll be here next week to recap it all. Now, granted, we were not going to talk about the Monday night game because obviously I'm going to have this recorded well before that, but you'll get my feel, take, etc. And I'll be looking forward to sharing it all next week. But between now and then, lots to digest, lots to dissect and disseminate. 
So let's move on. In fact, tonight, college football will culminate with a national champion, which is always the first champion of a new year. And you have Alabama and Georgia, a rematch of the SEC championship game, which was just, what, five, almost six weeks ago, to where Alabama embarrassed Georgia, even though Georgia got off to that 10 nothing start, and then Alabama just took over and ran away with the game. And it really questioned, at least for me as a fan, to wonder whether or not Kirby Smart is ever going to get over that hump. Well, now he has an opportunity and another shot to slay the Crimson Tide beasts that lie ahead of him. And all I could say, and I'm going to take this more from a Georgia aspect because with Alabama, if they lose this game, eh, so what? They won last year. They've won 100 times over the last decade. Even if they lose badly or lose a close game, nobody's going to look at Saban and say, oh, his legacy's tarnished. Nobody's going to say that. To me, this is all about Georgia. The dominant regular season that they had, the bitter pill that they swallowed in the SEC championship, and then the game against Michigan where they outclassed them in every way, shape, form, and fashion. That was the Georgia team we saw all year long. And now they have to do it again. And it's interesting too because the one guy who got a lot of knocks was the quarterback, Stetson Bennett. And you got to wonder whether or not he had his moment last week similar to what Justin Fields had last year as the Ohio State quarterback beating Clemson in that game where he threw for six touchdowns. They ran up the Georgia, or excuse me, the Clemson Tiger defense to, what was it, 49 points, I believe. And then even though in the next game he did play well, but not well enough to beat Alabama in the championship game, you got to wonder whether or not Stetson Bennett has had his Justin Fields moment. Because he's a guy that you're not going to rely on 100%. We know when you think of Georgia, you're going to think about their defense. And yes, they do have their skilled players on offense, but... Bennett's going to have to make some plays here similar to what he did last week against Michigan. And granted, the game got away from Michigan. Georgia just bulldozed them. So it wasn't even in doubt. Stetson Bennett didn't have to build up a sweat. But you do have to wonder whether or not that if Georgia gets off to a lead like they did in the championship game, or even if they're trailing, let's just say second quarter and it's 17-7, is he going to have enough in the tank And are they going to stick with that offensive game plan to know that they don't need to try to hit a grand slam with no one on base, to use a baseball analogy, or not to try to go for the long pass when they know that they could just methodically go down the field and still make it a game even if they're down two scores? Because it's not, again, this has nothing to do with Alabama. We know Bryce Young's going to be there. We feel that he's going to perform at the Heisman Trophy level that he has all season long, and it's Nick Saban. And yes, Brian Robinson, I know he had that big game against Cincinnati in the semifinal. You'd expect to see a lot of him, a lot of Jameson Williams. We know the cast of characters. But what is going to happen with Georgia and especially with their quarterback? And we know that their defense is top-notch. NFL players abound. And they're going to have to make their mark two on this game in order for them to get to that level, to get that championship. Kirby Smart, I believe, is 0-4 against Nick Saban including what happened there four years ago with Tua in the back of the end zone for a national title. And he came in relief in that game, if we all remember. 
So now we have to wait and see on whether or not Georgia is going to be that team to finally get themselves over a hump and they can be on their hands and knees to pray and hope that a national title comes their way. Funny thing is, a lot of people think that Georgia is going to win this game. And that's based on a lot of the rematches. And the one that comes to mind is LSU and Alabama. If you remember in 2011 where LSU won, I believe that was the game that won 9-6. And then in a national title game, they didn't even show up. They lost 21 nothing. And then even last year where Notre Dame beat Clemson. Now granted, it wasn't in a championship game, but it was in a playoff setting. And then, of course, Clemson just blew the doors off of Notre Dame in the semifinal last year. So when we've had those rematches over the years, I believe there was five of them, the team was not able to sweep in those other opportunities. And this is a time for Georgia to do the same. And there have been some circles where a lot of people thought that or think that Georgia is going to end up winning this game. All I could say is I hope so. And I'm going to be rooting for them hard. I say Alabama wins in a squeaker. It's Alabama. And I get it. Georgia's due finally the David versus Goliath. And it's not even a David versus Goliath scenario. I mean, Georgia's doing the number one team in the nation for pretty much the last six weeks of the college football season. But it's David versus Goliath in the scenario where Kirby Smart has not been able to get this giant piano off of his back. And I don't know why, I just, Alabama. And I hope I'm wrong. This will be like a 34-31 type game. Watch Kirby Smart go for it when he shouldn't have gone for it. It'll costly turnover. Ugh. We'll see. But I, I just think Alabama will prevail. I'm not going to go with the trends. I'm not going to go with, oh, you can't sweep a team, blah, blah, blah. You know, one of these years, it's got to, that has to break as much as Kirby Smart has to get over, get over that hump. So we shall see. And even though I'm not going to wait a whole week, you'll get my take on this tomorrow if you go to any of my social media platforms, Instagram, in particular Instagram, so J Reels, or in particular the J Reels podcast. So if you go to the J Reels podcast on Instagram, I'll also put a link on the other sites there. So, if, But if you go there, you'll get my final take on the game tomorrow as I'll post a video recapping the championship game. Oh, and one other thing I forgot to mention. Let me just do a little bit of a reverse and go back to the NFL for a second. If you think that I'm in love with the wildcard format this coming weekend, you're off your rocker because you can even check these receipts. I hated that the NFL posted a playoff game on a Monday night. Just have the 3-3 three and three Saturday, Sunday. Why? Why are we trying to get cute here to put a game on Monday night? It's beyond me. What, the NFL can't print up enough money to have another game televised for the networks to be seen? By Sunday night, I'm going to be just bleary-eyed when it comes to watching football. So now I got to gear up again for another game on a Monday night? And when we look at all the matchups, and granted, I understand it's Arizona and LA, but you know, you're not giving me something top flight. I hate to say it. I mean, you're not giving me even Pittsburgh, Kansas City. I understand that's a scary game because that game could get out of control early, but uh, but that's the NFL. Let me just move on. I just wanted to express my displeasure with the whole calendar when it came to wildcard weekend. So 
All right, now let's turn our attention to the NBA, the association, as we'll bring you up to speed on what's happening in the hardwood, as well as college basketball. But the big news this week, other than Kyrie Irving's return, 22 points against Indiana, and how much of an impact that their team's going to have when he's playing in these road games. I know the talk after the game, the media tried to bring up the whole thing about him being vaccinated, and thankfully, Kyrie was a little polite in that regard. You know, he didn't turn his nose or come back with a nasty remark. But Kyrie's going to make a difference here if the Nets are going to make it to a final. Because no matter how you slice it, dice it, whatever, even with Harden and Durant being the focal points of their offense and enough to carry a team deep into an NBA playoff, but if they're going to go all the way, they need to have Kyrie there. And if that means that Kyrie... Who knows what's going to happen here in the States or in particular here in New York City where if any of these mandates will be lifted when it comes to him being able to participate in home games. But thankfully, they don't have to worry about that until we get into the spring, into the early part of summer. But if I'm the Nets right now and looking at how Kyrie had performed, and it's just one game, we can't get crazy, but we know the back of his basketball card, there is no way that without him playing even in these road games but if he didn't play at all how I look at it I don't think the Nets would make it to a final and knowing that he's going to be there is reinforcement for me to think that the Nets they're going to be primed and ready and Kevin Durant said all the right things here he says who am I to tell Kyrie to get a vaccination or not they're still working on their camaraderie because knowing that he's going to be traveling with them on the road but not being able to have that presence at home he can practice with the team which is a plus but not be as far as on the court, at home games, or in the garden where the Nets still have to play the Knicks two times between now and the end of the season. So that was a big move as Kyrie got over that hurdle and just being appreciative. Not only that, but also showing a lot of gratitude. So good for him as the Nets look to try to reclaim the Eastern Conference. But now as we turn our attention to what's happening out West... The Warriors get back one of their critical pieces. And when you look at their team pretty much from the beginning of this ascent. Now, mind you, these last couple of years, as we know, they've fallen on hard times after the latest championship run with Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, etc. But for Klay Thompson, who had not played in an NBA game in 941 days, his last game was in the middle of June 2019 where he had a heroic performance until he had to leave with what was deemed later on as a torn ACL and for him to finally get back on the court for the first time in over two and a half years last night against the Cleveland Cavaliers was a welcoming sight not only just to the Warrior fan but to the NBA fan because there is not a guy in the league that is more liked than he is based on everything that you read about. Not only is he a fantastic teammate, not only is he well-respected, but he is a guy that is as good-natured, down-to-earth, etc., as you're going to get when it comes to an NBA superstar. So for him to come back yesterday and perform, putting up 17 points in 20 minutes, showcasing a couple of dunks, his range, it was a little cold to start off, but he was able to get in a little bit of a rhythm and put in 17 points in his first action since that NBA final versus Toronto in the old Oracle Arena across the bay. That is just a 
ginormous plus for the Warriors, not only getting off to the great start that they have, but also, is he that final piece? Crazy as that sounds, because he's always been part of the fabric, despite the fact that he's not been in the lineup in so long. But considering their success this year, is he the guy that's going to put this Warrior team over the top? It's still a little too early to tell. He's going to have to get his sea legs and get himself into game shape. And obviously he has a whole half a year and into the postseason to do so. But as tough as they were to start off this year, to me, how could they not be the odds-on favorite to make it out of the West? Especially if they're going to get a healthy Klay Thompson to go along with Steph Curry. Obviously Draymond Green, Andrew Wiggins, Kevon Looney. Guys coming off the bench, GP2, Gary Payton. Uh, you can go on down the list. I think this bodes well. And I didn't think going into the season, talking about over-unders, I didn't even think they were going to make it as an over at 48 and a half. And they're going to do that in their sleep. But for Thompson to be anything close to what he once was, and based on what his teammates have said so far, just reading yesterday that his first step, his explosiveness is just as potent as it was when he was playing at 100% before the injury, etc. And mind you, he also blew out his Achilles before last year, if you recall. Way too early to tell. I understand we can't put the cart before the horse, but if he's going to be in the lineup day in and day out and put forth optimum performance or anything close to what he was prior to these injuries, then it's going to be, I'm not going to say a cakewalk, but they're going to be the Western Conference finalist that's going to be in the NBA championship round. That's all there's to it. Not going to be Phoenix, not going to be the Lakers, Utah, Dallas, Denver, no, no, no. Golden State. Speaking of Golden State, they have a very interesting road trip this week as they go to Memphis, and I'm sure you saw the exploits of a one John Morant last night where he had the block on Avery Bradley as he scaled almost to the top of the backboard for a two-handed block, which he looked more like Spider-Man, let alone John Morant. And the Grizzlies were able to secure a win out at Staples against the Lakers. Well, Golden State will visit Memphis, I believe, on Tuesday before Golden State goes to Milwaukee to play the defending champs. So, interesting matchups for the Warriors as they hit the road here. And I believe they go to Chicago after that. So, the Bulls, as we've seen throughout the course of almost the halfway point of the season, still in first place in the Eastern Conference at 26-11. and 11, But the Warriors will... Keep an eye on this coming week as they have some stiff competition hitting the Midwest and then, of course, the Southeast to a certain extent as they'll hit up Tennessee as well. But overall, to get to standings, next week I'll go through a halfway point of the NBA season and give you my whole take on what's transpired throughout the league. I know one of the things I want to laugh at just real quick is uh, Julius Randle. I know he had the thumbs down in that game against the Celtics Day on Thursday night where they had the prayer answered by R.J. Barrett. He hit that three off the backboard. And I knew when I was watching at one point, what were they up? 61-37. And I said, watch the Celtics end up losing this game. And sure enough, they did. But for him to have the thumbs down, and although the fans didn't really get on his case, but he did apologize and he did talk how much he loves New York and his family, etc., that He channeled his inner Javier Baez. Now, he didn't say that I am. But it kind of made me wonder, is he a closet Met fan for putting the thumbs down 
to the crowd because they were booing early on in that game. They were playing lackluster defense. Obviously, the Celtics were getting points left and right. And sure enough, they came back and won the game there on Thursday. Even though the Celtics were able to get the win on Saturday in the home-and-home against the Knicks. And there was also been reports about how Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, the Killer Jays, if you want to call it, for the Celtics, how they were unable to play or coexist in the lineup. Jalen Brown shot that down. He said, yeah, we've had some bumps and bruises, but it's not as if I can't play with him. So that could pretty much be put out the pasture. No sweat there. But the association, other than that, has been relatively quiet. Yes, we've talked about how Memphis and John Morant that's a team you're going to have to keep your eyes on here, people. They have an exciting young player. He's going to be an all-star this year. They are 28-14 and 14 in a Western Conference where can they go up against the likes of Golden State and Phoenix when the money's on the line? I know maybe too early to tell, too soon, a young team, who knows, but they've been put on notice. And remember, they did a lot of their damage without Morant in the lineup when he had that knee injury. I believe it was in Brooklyn earlier this year. Or I take that back. They actually played in Brooklyn last week to where they came in and stormed the Nets right out of the building. There, I believe it was on Monday night. I was thinking of another injury that Morant had earlier this year. It was not in Brooklyn, but in his absence, they still played great. And in fact, now that I think about it, if we recall, one of the biggest deficits or the biggest deficit in NBA history when Memphis beat Oklahoma City what was it, by 75 points or whatever it was, that was with Morant out of the lineup. So we're going to have to keep our fingers on the pulse with the Grizzlies here this year to see if they're going to be a team that could be on the way up and maybe be in store for a long playoff run. But uh, besides that, you know, the Lakers are still struggling there. I know they're a game over 500. Think about this. They're at the halfway point of the year as far as their schedule goes. They're 21 and 20. So they're on pace to go 42-40 and this year. So a lot of basketball to be played. Remains to be seen. Other than that, as I look up and down the... There's nothing really to go crazy about. I know the Mavericks have played well here. I know Jason Kidd was just recently on the shelf due to COVID protocol. He was the 13th coach who had to sit out because of the health and safety protocols that the league has issued so kudos to the Mavericks for kind of turning their season around here a little bit and that's pretty much all you got there with the association college basketball again status quo although you had two losses over the past week where the Hurricanes went into Cameron Indoor and beat the Blue Devils so with the rankings that will come out later today Duke ranked number two in the nation they'll drop down a few spots as well as Kansas they're number six but they lost to Texas Tech on the road So you can see those two powerhouses take a slip in the polls. Baylor continues to win. They'll still be ranked number one when it's all said and done. So that's pretty much what we have there with the college basketball. As I pivot to tennis, before I get to baseball and then my hero in zero of the week, I'm pivoting to tennis because over the last few days, this has been a huge story when it comes to 20-time Grand Slam champion Novak Djokovic to where... He had flown into Australia, I believe it was last Tuesday, and he had to be detained because his visa wasn't accepted into the country of Australia. So not only was he detained at the airport, but he had to get clearance, he had to go through all these different hoops 
and obstacles to get over. And as we know, Australia is not super strict. They are ultra mega strict when it comes to their local COVID protocols, health and safety, things of that nature. You can't go from one state to the next without having to quarantine and all that. So here is Djokovic, who knows going in that he has to get the visa, which he did get, but this looked like the authorities in Australia dropped the ball because they knew that Djokovic was coming here, number one. And number two, for them not to not be prepared for not only the firestorm or even backlash to know that there wasn't going to be this seamless transition... They almost made Djokovic have to fly back to Serbia or wherever he was staying prior to him flying out to Australia because they were like, "Uh uh-uh, we're not going to let him in. And as of this morning, it seems like he's going to get his visa. He'll be able to enter the country. I believe he has a home somewhere that he's rented, not staying in a hotel. But knowing that he's not vaccinated, and even though it's not official, but we could pretty much determine that he is unvaccinated, that wherever he's going to stay at over the course of the next seven days leading up until the Australian Open next week, obviously he's going to be on his best behavior to steer clear of anyone and everyone besides his team, his circle, coaches, etc. So not only will he have an opportunity to defend his championship from last year, but he'll also have the opportunity to surpass his contemporaries, Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal, as being the biggest winner on the men's side in Grand Slam history as he's looking for that elusive 21st title. Remember last year, he lost in the U.S. Open final as he would have had a Grand Slam throughout the whole year, a calendar slam, but that fell short, so now he's going to have to start it up again, but even more so to be that guy at the top of the mountain when it comes to the most Grand Slam men's singles titles. But that was a whole mess with Djokovic last week because from one second to the next, not only by him not getting his visa and him having to possibly fly back and it would have been just a a gigantic mess. But there's also been some civil unrest in parts of Australia. Not only having Djokovic come back, but why is he coming back? He's unvaccinated. He shouldn't, you know, it doesn't belong. I can't go see my mom in the next state or a dying relative, but here he is. He's going to come in off of his private jet and come into our country as if it's nothing to where there were a bunch of protests. A lot of people, I don't know if there were any injuries or God forbid any fatalities, but I know Australia is going through it right now, knowing that Djokovic is going to be pretty much the spotlight And the focal point of this tournament and what the outrage is going to be like with the citizens and the public down under. So we'll see how that shakes down and how that unfolds once the tournament begins next week. But Djokovic obviously going to be cleared to play. So all for the tennis fan and for the tennis world, that's going to be a big side because a lot of people would look at if Djokovic isn't going to be there, then it's not going to be much of a tournament. So we got that uh, to look forward to. And as far as the baseball goes, as the talks, nothing's gone on there, as I said. So I won't even get into that. But we do have a couple of things. One I didn't mention last week, and that was Kyle Seeger, the brother of Corey Seeger, the Seattle Mariner third baseman. He retired at the age of 34. He did play 11 seasons 
in the majors, but I found it a little bit surprising considering that Seattle was a team that won 90 games that looked like they were maybe going to take it to the next step next year, but he figured that, uh-uh, I played 11 seasons, I'm going to step down. And with his brother being a big part of the free agent frenzy this offseason as he got $300 million. I would have got 300 350 I forgot what it was by the Texas Rangers. But Kyle Seeger retires, so I wanted to give him his just due. And then, I get this is probably much ado about nothing, but considering the off-seasons for both the Mets and Yankees, and knowing that, I believe it was right around Christmas, where the Yankees were going to hire Eric Chavez, the former Oakland A third baseman. Later on, he did play with the Yankees, had a cup of coffee with them. Very good defensive third baseman, had some power, but for the Yankees to bring him on board as being a hitting coach, And then it seemed like in a blink of an eye, Chavez turned that down and now is taking his bats and his knowledge across the bridge into Flushing and is now the Met hitting coach. Made me scratch my head and look around and say, well, how the hell did this happen? Well, one of the main reasons is that Billy Epler, who is an assistant GM with the Yankees back during the time where Chavez not only was toward the end of his playing career, but even as he tried to get into baseball and become, whether it be a hitting coach or a coach of some sort on a major league level, he has ties with Epler dating back to six, seven years ago to where when Epler got the job as the Angel GM, he followed suit, went to Anaheim, was a part of his staff for I don't know how many years it was. And then once Epler got the ax, And even with Chavez coming to the Bronx, I guess for whatever the reason, he didn't even inquire with the Mets. Maybe Epler got in his ear. Who knows if Steve Cohen was the one that kind of needled Epler to see if he could bring Chavez on board. Uh, I don't know if there was any signatures signed on the dotted line, whether it was official or whether it was a handshake deal. Who knows? But there's Steve Cohen going at the Yankees or even the Yankee fans. Now, mind you, nobody's going to confuse Eric Chavez with Charlie Lau or Walt Riniak or Ted Williams. If you don't know who Charlie Lau or Walt Riniak is, look them up. As far as the techniques of hitting goes, and even me, I'm surprised with that. But based on some of the things that I've read, that there was no animosity between the Mets and Yankees. It was actually amicable that both parties and I guess they understood that this transition that maybe Chavez although he did like the Yankees and boom but maybe he wanted to be with Epler because of his relationship that he had with them over the years and I guess Brian Cashman and Hal Steinbrenner they said all right if that's the case I'm surprised they did do that because for the Yankee fan and maybe just from a PR standpoint it doesn't look good based on everything that the Mets have done this postseason or this offseason excuse me Bringing in Max Scherzer, bringing in the center fielder, bringing in an infielder, Eduardo Escobar, bringing in Buck Showalter, and now they go ahead and poach the hitting coach from the Yankees and bring him across the river into City Field? I don't know. Uh, I mean, you can look at it that way if you want. Uh, I certainly am not going to look at Chavez as being, whoa, he's the one guy that I wish we had. No, I, I could care less. You know, you have a lot of guys who are hitting coaches that were probably 200 hitters in their career. And Chavez was a guy, I believe, is what? Probably off the top of my head. He's probably a lifetime 260 at best hitter. So again, this isn't a guy that's going to be confused with Tony Gwynn. Let's not get it twisted. But 
Something to keep in mind if you're looking at Steve Cohen just trying to do whatever it takes to get his team back on the winning side, whether it's with the fan base, whether it's just in his own building, or whether just to take it to the next level. Mind you that there isn't a CBA to be in sight, but that's what we have there with the baseball. And uh, we'll keep our eyes peeled for anything that's happening in that sport. Lastly, I'll get to the NHL. There really isn't much to talk about here. I know you have postponed games left and right. And I know I should have brought up the NHL right after the NBA, but the NHL, they still haven't gotten to the halfway point of their season, as we know, with all these games being postponed. And obviously, you can't go into Canada if you're a team that plays here in the States and vice versa. It's just an, it's a mess. That they're going to need more than three weeks, this Olympic break, in order to make up these games. I was thinking that the NHL is probably banking on those three weeks to make up a lot of these games, but it seems like more games are being postponed since the Christmas break. And remember, they took that week leading into Christmas off. But the Islanders, I felt like they haven't played in a month. And they'll play tomorrow night for the first time because remember, they had a trip that was going to be played in Western Canada, going to Edmonton, Vancouver. They were supposed to play Seattle, but they didn't play the Kraken. I don't know why. I guess because they're so close to the border, but even still, it's part of the United States. So why didn't they play the Kraken then? Who knows? But the NHL is just, they're just trying to get through this first half. I'm sure they're probably looking at the All-Star break as not only just a break, but a way to exhale and try to regroup because they have just been beyond decimated with lost games, having to make up a lot of this schedule that they've already lost, and how they're going to do it, you got me. And the standings right now, as we take a quick look, the Atlantic is hotly contested. It seems like every other week, it's either Florida, Tampa, or Toronto playing leapfrog with each other at the top of their division. Carolina and the Rangers are tied at 50 points with the Capitals just a point behind them. I know the Penguins, I believe, didn't they just come off a long winning streak? They just finally lost there the other day. Actually, it's to the Stars, but prior to that, even though they had a stretch where they had a bunch of postponed games, that was due to the Christmas break. But they did have a streak of, I believe, nine games. Let me take a look at that real quick. That is, uh, yeah, they actually won nine in a row, three, six, actually won ten in a row prior to that. So... The Penguins just got cooled off there by the Dallas Stars. And then when we take a look over at the Western Conference, Nashville has made a run there to the top of their division. And the Blues, just a point behind them, as well as in the Pacific with the Golden Knights, just two points ahead of Anaheim. I know Edmonton is really cratered here. Edmonton, remember, I believe they were 11-1 to start their year. And since then, they've just been pathetic. And also, they've had their players in COVID protocol, including Connor McDavid, after their sojourn to New York City last week and going up to Toronto, that's when McDavid came down with COVID before the game against Toronto. Who knows how much longer he's going to be out. So the Oilers are really hitting a tough skid right here as they try to get out of their own way and get back in the win column. Losers of five straight. But that's what you got there with the NHL. There really isn't any much to get into there. I know we could talk about, if you want to get into the return of Marc-Andre Fleury back to Vegas for the first time. I get it. He was there a few years. He was part of that first year where they went to the cup final, but he had a hero's welcome in his first trip back to Vegas since he went to Chicago. But other than that, there really isn't anything much to write home about. 
Sadly, the NHL is just trying to skate on this thin ice on pretty much the hairs by their chinny-chin-chin. I mean, what? I don't know what else more I could say when it comes to the National Hockey League. But you would only hope that they would be able to get out of this, that they could hopefully make up some of these games and not have just a scattered season where some teams may finish at 82 and others are going to finish at 78. Oh, who knows? Ugh. Thankfully, I'm not the one in charge and certainly do not envy that person in that position who has to deal with that. All right, so let me get to my hero and zero of the week, people, before I bid adieu. My hero of the week goes out to Rachel Balkovec. Who is she, you might say? She is been promoted to manage the low-A New York Yankee minor league affiliate, the Tampa Tarpons, making her the first woman to lead a professional baseball team, and kudos to her. Now, mind you, a couple of years ago, the Yankees had hired her to be a hitting coach, and this dates back to her first breaking into baseball as a strength and conditioning coach back in 2011 with the St. Louis Cardinals. She worked her way up, and I remember the story coming out to where she was going to be a hitting coach. I thought it was going to be on the major league level, but it was on the minor league level, and here she's going to get an opportunity with the Tampa team to manage for the first time. So I guess you could say kudos to the Yankees, but I'd rather give Rachel the props because groundbreaking to say the least, historic. Hopefully that'll lead to bigger and better for her and for other women in the sport who are looking to aspire to become a manager or even a coach, whether it be in basketball, hockey, football, etc. So Rachel, you're my hero of the week. And my zero of the week goes out to Washington Wizards announcer Glenn Consor for making a reference to Rockets guard Kevin Porter Jr. after making a huge three-point shot to win a game this past week in Washington to where Consor said, you have to give him credit, Kevin Porter Jr., just like his dad, pulled the trigger at the right time. Now, sadly, Porter's dad was charged with manslaughter in the death of a teenage girl back in the 90s, but I believe he mistakenly thought that Porter's dad was the former point guard of the Bullets team going back to the 80s. So not only did he have terrible judgment in using that type of comment, but also the insensitivity on his part, thinking that it was Kevin Porter, the former point guard of the Bullets. Meanwhile, it was not. And then also making that comment about his father, who was charged many years ago. I mean, geez. Come on, guys. I get it that he apologized profusely. He felt terrible about it, etc. But we've seen this movie before with some of these comments. And you know that there isn't any way, shape, or form that something like that, even if you know you're saying it in jest, it's not going to come out where you have thousands of people and maybe even millions. Well, I won't say millions. We have thousands of people watching this game locally. Just a terrible look. So, Glenn Consor, you are my zero of the week. All right, I'll wrap it up for episode 232. As always, people, I appreciate you taking the time out to listen to what it is I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. And as I mentioned at the very top, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. As I said, it will increase the visibility. As I try to get my name out there, get some guests on here, as I'm in working furiously behind the scenes to do that. So throw me a few stars, write a review, get it out there, take a screenshot, show it to your friends, fans, whatever it may be, I don't care. Hit me up on social media in reference to that, and I'll be sure to acknowledge that. Also, questions, comments, criticism, praise, you could do so by hitting me up at the following. J Reels or the J Reels podcast, that's on Instagram. 
on Twitter, JReels1, just the number on Facebook, the JReels Podcast fan page, and the old-fashioned way, the JReels Podcast at gmail.com. Questions, comments, criticism, please send them my way. I'll be sure to follow up. And lastly, if you want to contribute to the podcast, you could do so at www.patreon.com slash the JReels Podcast. That's P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy. What that's going to do, whatever you want to put forth, is going to go directly, 100% into this endeavor. The website, the production, equipment, everything that this podcast entails so that I can deliver a crisp, concise, also a beautiful platform on jreels.com to show not only you but to the world what I'm about, my archive shows, obviously the bio, what I'm about, etc. Because whether you do or do not know, it's in the blood, people. It's in my DNA. This is what I love to do. I love to talk sports. I'm passionate about it, sharing my thoughts, opinions, analysis with fire, passion, you name it, on everything that happens in the world of the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis course, octagon, boxing ring, all of it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.